You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones, and today I'm joined by Florence Sutcliffe-Braithwaite, who teaches history at University College London and has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on Wales since the 1960s. It's a review of Brittle with Relics, a history of Wales 1962-97 to by Richard King. Hello, Florence, and thank you very much for talking with me today. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's begin with just with those dates that Richard King chooses for his book. I suppose 1997 is obvious enough, the year New Labour came to power and the beginning of Welsh devolution. But why does he begin in 1962? And so he begins there because of a, a famous speech that was made in that year by Saunders Lewis, who had been one of the founders uh, of Plaid Cymru, the Nationalist Party in Wales in the 1920s, um, and who was still a, a kind of a, a significant figure in the what was then a, a relatively small Welsh nationalist movement. And in that year, he gave this this famous speech, which said that the pursuit of self-government for Wales should actually take a kind of backseat to the promotion of the Welsh language and, and Welsh culture, so that those should be the goals of the movement um, and they, that they should be pursued by means of direct action. So not so much a sort of parliamentary strategy but a kind of direct action strategy taking the movement sort of sort of out into the country so this speech kind of inaugurated a, a new wave of enthusiasm and a, a, a new sort of moment in in the development of welsh nationalism and what sort of form did that direct action take so there's a whole range of different things that that activists started doing um, and, and to some extent, they were drawing on on earlier instances of direct action, including by Saunders Lewis himself. So there were some sort of instances of quite major direct action, for example, vandalising the site that was being used to build the dam that was going to flood the valley of Trewerin in order to create this, this reservoir that was going to serve not Wales, but the English city of Liverpool. But there was also a lot of direct action that was on a much kind of smaller scale. So, for example, refusing to obey summons to court over relatively small matters uh, that were sent in English and demanding that these be, should be sent in the Welsh language and refusing to turn up to court until these summons were sent in Welsh. And in some cases, activists sort of went to quite great lengths to to try and get arrested so that they could have a summons to court that they could refuse to to obey until it was sent in Welsh um, and in, in some instances they're quite frustrated by how difficult it could be to to sort of get yourself arrested on a relatively minor um, for a relatively minor infraction of the law so that you could then undertake this sort of this sort of direct action. And were there movements to teach the language and that kind of thing as well? Yes. So I, I suppose the biggest element of the campaign to kind of teach the language was the, the campaign to get it given equal status in schooling and to have it taught to all children in Wales in, in school, uh, which was eventually achieved in the late 20th century. Um, it was actually passed by That was actually put through by a, a conservative government in the end. But, I mean, that was reversing a policy of, of centuries, wasn't it? That you, you mentioned in the piece that in 15... 15- 1536 all holders of public office in Wales had been required to speak English and there was a so there was a centuries of this English push to to suppress the Welsh language yeah going back to the 16th century there's not so much a push to suppress the Welsh language at that point across the whole of Wales 
and among ordinary people. It's more a case of an insistence from London, from England, that English, English should be the language of administration, which obviously ends up having a strong impact on elites, people who are in a position to potentially participate in government to hold public office of any sort in Wales. The movement to kind of suppress suppress the Welsh language among ordinary Welsh speakers, that doesn't really start until the 19th century. And in a sense, again, it's not really so much a sort of malign insistence on the part of the government in Westminster that English will be spoken everywhere. It's more a case of a sort of, I suppose, a kind of blinkered sort of chauvinism that has no place for the Welsh language and which therefore ignores the needs of the Welsh language in favour of English. So so the, the big thing that happened in the mid-19th century was that universal elementary education was being more and more sort of rolled out across the country. And the way that funding was given was based on whether teachers could get their students to pass these tests. And even in Wales, these tests were set in English. So teachers, even if they had wanted to to teach the Welsh language as well, they had a very strong financial incentive to teach their students in English. So in a way, these are the two things that that were reversed in the 20th century. You have the Mm. schooling exclusively in English, and then that got turned around and it was compulsory for schooling to be done in Welsh as well. And then the, the official language, which had been English since the 16th century, and then that that everything is now in has to be in both has to be in English and Welsh. So both those those two movements. And how much credit can Plaid Cymru take for those shifts? Uh, so I'd, I wouldn't say Plaid Cymru alone. I think this is more a case of a, a broader movement for the revival of and the protection of the Welsh language and Welsh culture. That Plaid Cymru is really only one part of. I suppose this is one of the things that I think is is really helpful about King's book. He shows that there's a broader movement encompassing a lot of different organisations and also sort of cultural movements, um, some of which are sort of more organised and some of which are very grassroots. These are all sort of part of this general push to revive and protect and defend Welsh language and Welsh culture. So it's not just one organisation and it's it's quite a broad, in some ways, pluralistic movement. I mean, to turn that around slightly, it does seem to have been quite an effective strategy for Plaid Cymru because they got their first parliamentary seat in 1966 having been you know being as you said earlier they were founded in the in the mid-1920s and it was more than 40 years before they got a parliamentary seat and that was quite a short time after this change in strategy. Yeah I mean I think the real the real thing that propels Plaid to win that first seat in 1966 is the really powerful sense that government from Westminster is not working for Wales, that is really propelled by the flooding of the Valley of Trawaran to create this reservoir, which is something that no Welsh MPs supported, but which was imposed on Wales. And that really directly propelled the election of Plaid's first MP. So I think we can't discount the importance of the way that Westminster government treated Wales in the success of Plaid. And there's a 
sort of immensely long history of that, isn't it? I mean, just think of colonial infrastructure that England's imposed on Wales from the castles built by Edward I at the end of the 13th century, which, you know, even Welsh government websites nowadays talk about how magnificent they are, but they were sort of the military outposts of a, of a hostile occupying force. And even the railways as well. I remember reading a few years ago, someone pointing out, if you look at railway maps of Wales, that metropolitan railways were built to carry people between cities and to help the population get around. But if you look at that, colonial railways were built according to sort of an extractive logic. And that's what happened in Wales, that the railways in Wales were built to take the coal from the valleys to the docks. And, that, and even now, if you want to get a train from Cardiff to Aberystwyth, you have to go through Shrewsbury, which is <laughs> crazy, really. Um, and so that and that flooding of the, of the valley to make the reservoir for Liverpool. And the other thing that you mentioned also, another kind of submersion of that is the, the Aberfan disaster. Yeah, so the Aberfan disaster was when a, a slag heap that was above the village of Aberfan in South Wales collapsed submerging or partially submerging the village and killing 144 people, including 116 children uh, when the the primary school that they attended was submerged. And this, I think, is really significant because the geography of Welsh speaking in Wales has long been that Welsh speaking is strongest in the northwest, so that's the kind of heartland. And the South Wales Valleys, that area has long been mainly quite English speaking. There have been some, you know, very long standing Welsh speaking communities in the South Wales Valleys, but for the most part, it's quite strongly English speaking, very much a Labour heartland, not at all a nationalist heartland. So this disaster at the heart of the kind of the Labour heartlands in the South Wales Valleys, this industrialised belt, was really significant because one of the things that tied the union together in the immediate post-war period was the existence, the building up of a, a kind of central developmental state that was concerned to develop and protect the industrial economy and the industrial communities all across England, Wales and Scotland. And the National Coal Board, the nationalised coal industry, was a, a real kind of linchpin of that. So the Aberfan disaster was a moment when it became clear that this was not an entirely benign settlement. The NCB was not this this wonderful exemplar of a kind of national and nationalised body that was looking out for industrial communities all across the country, wherever there were coal mining communities in England, Wales and Scotland, um, because the response of the National Coal Board was really, in many ways, I mean, it was just a disaster. One of the kind of issues that came out afterwards was that local people, including local children, were all aware of the fact that there was water on the hillside in and around this this tip. So the NCB said, oh, well, no one could have known that this tip was going to collapse, that it was being kind of um, sort of undermined by the movement of water underneath the slag heap. But local people said, well, actually, no, we did know. There's sort of echoes of, of Grenfell Tower here. And the, the National Coal Board insisted that it was an act of God until finally a, a kind of big investigation was held. And it was found that, in fact, it, it, it would have been avoidable if more safety measures had been put in place. 
And was it London not caring about, I suppose you can look at it in two ways. You can see it as London not caring about Wales, but you can also see it as the the bosses not caring about the workers. Yeah. I do think this kind of comes back to your earlier question about to what extent is Plaid Cymru responsible for the changes in government policy in the late 20th century and ultimately for devolution. We also need to look, I think, in comparative context at what's going on with the SNP and with Plaid Cymru at sort of roughly at the same time. And I think it's it's obvious that the sort of decay of what we might call the kind of social democratic settlement at Westminster, the decay of this central state concerned to develop economically the whole of Britain, that is one of the things that propels the development of nationalist parties in both places because there's this sense that the central state is no longer looking after these really important industrial communities and so ultimately you you sort of start to get other movements springing up that say well we are going to look after these communities we are going to focus on the economic development of these places that are increasingly being ignored by the central state. I mean, up to a point that's happened in England as well, right? I mean, in a sense, the rise of the popularity of, of UKIP and the Brexit Party in former industrial heartlands of England is a similar movement, that it's a nationalism taking the place of a class-based politics. Mm. And I think you can see it um, where you've had devolution in Manchester, where Andy Burnham has, has made a, a kind of strong case that we've been ignored. I'm not going to let that happen anymore. I think this sentiment as you suggest, it is very possible for it to be kind of taken up and marshalled behind either a more left-wing or a more right-wing politics. And it sort of depends on individual context, but also on political leadership, who takes up that, that political leadership. Yeah, and as, a, as you say in the piece, the question of a language-based nationalism is clearly can be problematic. And you mentioned that it was a con- conservative, conservative party that introduced the language-teaching teaching Welsh language in schools and there are plenty of conservative Welsh well there are a few conservative Welsh MPs but they're some of them are very proud of their Welsh speaking that they speak Welsh and so that there's nothing inherently progressive about the promotion of the Welsh language I mean in a sense you can see actually it could be quite a reactionary movement. Absolutely I suppose some people within Plaid Cymru and the broader nationalist movement would kind of flip it round and say okay it might be possible to have more right-wing or even reactionary or even quite narrow-minded and culturally exclusive language campaign. But if you really want to protect and build up the language and the culture, you need to protect and build up the communities. And so maybe the only sort of long-term viable sort of campaign for language and culture has to integrate a focus on economics, sustainability, community development. And you write in the piece about a wider cultural revival. Welsh publishing houses and, and record labels and bands like Dat Bluggy. And as, as that band singer David Rupert Edwards later put it, he didn't like the fact that Welsh music was seen to be male voice choirs, folk music and all the cliches. He said he wanted to modernise Welsh language culture. And in the song that you quote in the piece, Canny Gamri, Song for Wales, they're simultaneously satirising that more conservative strain in Welsh language culture 
and at the same time demonstrating how it can be done differently. A lifetime ticket on the gravy train, I'd rather be a junkie than as green as applied Cymru poster. Some of King's other interviewees in the book talk about how kind of exciting that was to hear people singing in Welsh, but presenting a very different view of what Welsh language and Welsh culture could and should be that wasn't, you know, these these quite old-fashioned things connected with Methodism, connected with respectability, something, you know, much more modern, um, more class-conscious, that was critical of these middle-class Welsh speakers who, in some cases, made, you know, had made really successful careers out of being professional Welsh speakers and, and Welsh activists. There's something really exciting about this kind of alternative vision of, of Welsh culture and what the Welsh language could be. And did that happen with, with S4C as well, when they, when they introduced the Welsh language TV channel? Did that have a similar sort of effect? I mean, what sort of programming was on it when it started? I'm not actually sure about that. I mean, even within the sort of nationalist debates, you know, there were some people who... There have been some people who've been quite critical of the Welsh language TV channel and, and kind of said, you know, is it making TV programs that are kind of good enough? I mean, there's that, but there have been some things, like a police procedural hinterland, which they was filmed in English and in Welsh, and they filmed every scene twice and mm. did it in both languages, which partly I think made for really good TV, partly because I seem to make it, this is such a tangent, but that they reduced it, that the, the dialogue had to be only what was necessary. Because if you're having to film mm. every scene twice, obviously you want to, I mean, actually the less people say, the better in some way. So it actually, <laughs> this strange way of having this bilingual TV series in which all the actors have to speak both languages and they have to film every scene in both languages. Although in the English mm. language version, some of it's Welsh with subtitles. I mean, it made it really hard boiled and that kind of <laughs> to pare down. But that's sort of my idea of it. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. We'd like to introduce a special offer for LRB podcast listeners from our friends at The Left Book Club. The Left Book Club is a not-for-profit subscription book club based on the famous club run by Victor Galantz. It's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore today's most pressing issues from the world's leading political thinkers. LRB podcast listeners can get 20% off any subscription by going to www.leftbookclub.com forward slash member and using the code LRB take 20 at checkout. That's LRB take two zero. So there's several things going on as we hear that sort of Plyde make this move towards language and culture. And then a few years after this famous speech in which Plaid Cymru is saying, let's move away from pushing for self-government and focus more on linguistic and, and cultural forms of independence or identity or nationalism. But then there was the, the movement for, for self-government did sort of gather momentum at the same time. 
And did that lead directly to devolution or was that more to do with Labour Party politics and Scottish devolution? And was it a, a larger thing across the whole of Britain? Yeah, I think in both 1979 and 1997, really devolution ended up on the agenda because of the Labour Party and because of what was going on in Scotland and because the SNP was was really gaining ground in Scotland in the 70s forcing Labour to kind of take the initiative on devolution and offer this this referendum on devolution in 1979, which was lost in both cases, but by much by a larger margin in Wales. But the the issue obviously didn't go away. And so in the in the 90s, the Labour Party was again kind of taking the initiative on thinking about what constitutional settlement would work for Scotland while also maintaining the union. And the Labour Party kind of led a big sort of constitutional convention rethinking in the late 80s and early 90s, which ultimately led to the these commitments to devolution referendums in Scotland. And then also because it doesn't really make sense to just do Scotland without doing Wales, it would seem to be kind of perverse. So obviously you're, you're going to think about both of them together. So you get these uh, commitments to holding devolution referendums, which basically already been decided by the time Tony Blair became leader. And so even though Blair was not particularly keen on, he wasn't a true believer when it came to devolution at all, they go in the manifesto for 97. And then because Labour obviously won a, a huge majority in that election, those referendums took place really quickly as well. Um, it was sort of set out that they would happen really quickly after the Labour Party won, uh, which, you know, in a sense, represented a, a kind of strong commitment to having them. Also, some in, implied in the kind of broader nationalist movement did feel that having this incredibly quick campaign was a bit of a sort of uh, slightly hampered the extent to which they could could really campaign for a yes vote in Wales and might well have been one of the reasons why the vote in Wales was so close. I mean, the margin of victory for devolution in Wales was even closer than than it was for Brexit. I mean, there are probably various reasons for that. It's not just the kind of length of time of, of the campaign. The fact that Diana died in the middle of the campaign and there was this huge kind of outpouring of royalist and sort of by implication unionist sentiment in the aftermath of Diana's death some saw that as a bit of a, a kind of um, an upset to the campaign as well. Because she was Princess of Wales. I mean, not that she was in any <laughs> mm. meaningful sense, but in terms of the... Yeah. Mm. Because I always imagined that the idea that Charles going around calling himself the Prince of Wales <laughs> and the history of the Black Prince and all of that, I mean, it's it's yet more sort of... It's it's a colonialist position. But was Diana's position different because they because they were divorced, that she kept the prince, the Princess of Wales was the, the royal title that she kept. Was there some sense that... Yeah, this is certainly something that some activists implied think played a part in the in the referendum campaign. And, and, you know, they say so in their interviews with King. Obviously, there is an extent to which this was a moment of crisis for the royal family as well. So, you know, to my mind, it's not entirely clear why necessarily more this is going to be a moment when more people in Wales are going to be hugely enthusiastic for the monarchy and the union you know this is a moment where Tony Blair kind of rescues the queen well that amazing speech the princess of hearts and that yeah exactly what he did and perhaps that 
mm. with the Labour landslide and and all the rest of it. And presumably, I mean, if you look at all those things all together, that the idea, this moment, there's the Labour government mm. after 18 years and all the rest of it. Yeah. This isn't the moment. You can see what, and, and the, the extent to which the death of Diana is so tied up with Blair's honeymoon period as Prime Minister. And I suppose it seems like a kind of crisis moment for the country and and perhaps that plays for some people as a reason, do we dare vote for independence at this particular moment? So Diana's death is certainly something that some Plaid activists think played a part, although it's not quite clear what the precise psychological mechanisms through which this became a reason for some people to, to vote no are. But I do think that probably the longer term reasons are the most significant reasons why the vote was so, so close in Wales in 1997. So the, this long-standing division between English-speaking areas and Welsh-speaking areas, which kind of broadly, although not entirely, maps onto a kind of south and east versus north and west sort of divide. And the kind of long-standing fears that English-speaking people, particularly in, for example, the South Wales Valleys, had about potentially being kind of dominated by a Welsh-speaking minority versus the Welsh-speaking minority fearing that in a devolved administration, English speakers are going to be in a majority and are therefore going to be able to potentially outvote them. That sort of long-standing division and those long-standing anxieties certainly played a role in making that, that vote so close. And I think there was this feeling in perhaps quite large parts of Wales that devolution was a kind of step into the dark and various of King's interviewees talk about ways in which Wales sort of lacked confidence. Welsh people lacked confidence in the possibility of Wales taking control of its own politics. So this isn't just something that that sort of nationalists kind of lamented, it's also something that Philip Gould went and did focus groups in various parts of Wales in the run-up to the devolution election and found that people sort of had this, were expressing this sense of anxiety, a lack of confidence. And in in the end, what I think happened was that when devolution happened, it quite simply proved that it was possible that Wales could make devolution work, that Wales could have devolution, could have an assembly or as a sound in Senate, that it could could do it. And so many of King's interviewees comment on this, feeling that this lack of confidence was turned around by the practical experience of actually doing it with devolution. But if the, from an internal Labour Party point of view, one of the purposes of devolution was to sort of see off the, what they saw as the, the nationalist threat from the SNP and from Plight, that in Scotland it I mean, it completely backfired in the long term, the, the way in which Labour has been wiped out as a political force in, in Scotland. But in Wales, it hasn't that the First Minister, the Welsh First Minister is Mark Drayford. He's a, you know, he's a member of the Labour Party in it. And it's sort of, it. I mean, it had the effect that Labour wanted there. And, it, and it's quite interesting that in terms of the, the last Welsh leader of the Labour Party, that Neil Kinnock was, as you say in the piece, was not at all a Welsh nationalist and he was very opposed to it. Well, and in Scotland, that John Smith was in favour of devolution, and he whatever you used the phrase a true believer, he was a was a true believer in in devolution. And yet, what's happened is that presumably the the political settlement in Wales now is what 
what Labour would have hoped for. Yeah, it does seem quite ironic. But I suppose it, one thing it suggests is that it's not inevitable that moves to devolution will spark further claims, further claims, further claims, and, and lead down a kind of road to inevitable independence. I mean, but is there a longer histor- historical view on this that the the union between England and Scotland is is much more is much more recent? You know, it's from seventeen oh seven, and whereas Wales was conquered in the in the Middle Ages. Yeah, and there's also the sort of the fact that Scotland is just that bit larger. There's the the legacy of North Sea oil, which played a huge part in changing the way that a lot of people thought about the economic prospects for an independent Scotland um, and really helped helped drive the rise of the SNP in the late 60s and 70s um, and sort of made Scottish independence seem much more feasible from an economic point of view. Wales hasn't seen anything kind of similar to that. I mean, in a way, what happened What happened in Wales under Thatcher with the, well, and before, I guess, isn't it? I mean, you, well, you know this much more precisely than me, but that the, the closing of the coal mines and the disappearance of the coal industry from South Wales to be replaced by nothing. And isn't it right that there are some former coal mining communities in South Wales where unemployment is incredibly high, the number of people on sickness benefit is, is incredibly high because they didn't they closed the mines and nothing was brought in to replace them? Mm. I mean, what was brought in to the extent that anything was brought in to replace the coal mines and, and other really major heavy industries was a bit of light industry, warehousing, and sort of service sector jobs that operate kind of on kind of a sort of gig economy model with low wages and you know what's called flexible employment so not offering the kind of wages or the kind of security or really the sense of kind of that there's some kind of meaning and kind of social purpose to your work that you're kind of building something um that many of these these older industries for for all their problems you know environmental but also in terms of the kind of the the danger and the hardship that people experienced at work, you know these these older heavy industries and and coal mining did did offer those those other things. You say in the piece that um, although the mortality rate for deaths involving COVID is no different from Wales and England, but Wales has come out of the pandemic more united and with much higher levels of trust in its political leadership. Why is that? The obvious reason is that the Tory government at Westminster has has been associated with you know, giving out contracts to cronies and with flagrant breaking of the rules that they themselves created. And by contrast, you know, Mark Drakeford has has been a kind of sober, serious, responsible figurehead um, who people in Wales can kind of respect. I mean, I think it's sort of as simple as that. And there are, there are other things that the administration in Wales have been doing that have been been announced really sort of really progressive things such as this this plan to give money money to care leavers a kind of basic income pilot scheme sixteen hundred pounds a month to every eighteen year old leaving care i mean this seems i mean that almost puts it at the forefront of the most progressive governments anywhere in europe or or the world even these this idea, and that the Senate rejected the nationality and borders bill, which implies that there's a I don't know. In some ways, that the Welsh nation is a more inclusive one than than the English one. And you, in your piece, you talk, talk about one of the people who who King interviews, who's um, the academic Charlotte Williams. 
who's a person of colour and brought up in Wales but doesn't speak Welsh. And so what is, for someone like her, what does it mean to be Welsh? Yeah, I think there are quite a few of King's interviewees who outline this plural, open, inclusive, civic Welsh nationalism um, that, that is sort of the kind of nationalism that King himself implicitly is endorsing throughout the book, which has a place for culture, but which is completely rejects the more sort of exclusive forms of, of kind of Welsh cultural nationalism that have definitely played a part in Plaid Cymru and in the, the kind of nationalist movement generally, even if it's often been quite a small kind of um, section of that movement. Um, but that sort of element of nationalism, people like Charlotte Williams kind of completely reject. And because I've been saying that the, there's Labour leadership in Wales, which of course it is, there's the, it's led by the First Minister, Mark Drakeford, but it operates with the, with the support of, of Plaid. Yeah, it's a very interesting arrangement because Labour and Plaid were in, you know, actual coalition before. That ended up being quite unpopular, particularly with Plaid and Plaid voters in the, the way that is you know, extremely well known. The minority partner in a coalition quite often gets punished for it at the next election. We saw it happen with the Lib Dems, of course, at Westminster. So Plaid is now wary of entering full-blown coalition with Labour, given that that past experience. So now the two parties operate with what they have called a cooperation agreement, which is an agreement to work together on a lot of policy areas over the next three years, and an agreement to kind of try and come up with implementation plans for more long-term goals that both parties are, are agreed on, but which seem like they may well be too difficult to kind of fully implement in the next three years. So for example, they want to um, come up with some kind of implementation plan to move towards free social care on the same kind of model as at the NHS, where it's free at the point of use. But that's a kind of longer term goal. And then there's these more immediate goals that the, the two parties want to cooperate on in the next three years. So they don't have a, a formal coalition, but there is a kind of applied minister who sort of shadows or works with the Labour minister responsible for each of these these kind of areas. And as you're suggesting, many of the things that they aim to do are very progressive. I think you're right. The Labour-led government in Wales at the moment is one of the most progressive, probably of anywhere in the world. The stuff that they want to do on housing, which has long been a real problem in Wales because of, in large part, this influx of incomers of various sorts, particularly second homeowners, retirees, that's been going on for 50 years at least. Housing in Wales is, is a real problem, particularly in more the kind of Welsh-speaking heartlands, like in the northwest, also in somewhere like Pembrokeshire. House prices are basically being pushed further and further out of the reach of a lot of the locals who simply can't compete with the amount of money that second homeowners and other people moving into the area have at their disposal. So there's a whole load of things that the the Labour Applied Cooperation Agreement says that they're going to work together on. There's this very high profile thing about um, trying to tackle the, the second homes crisis by increasing the amount that councils can surcharge second homeowners 
in terms of council tax. So at the moment, it's 100%. It's going to go up to 300%. But there's also a lot of other stuff that is sort of uh, not so directly focused on this really emotive, really powerful kind of issue of second homes. But there's loads of other stuff they want to do. They want to look at rent controls. They want to look at a national building service to actually build more homes. They want to do loads and loads of stuff on this, on the issue of housing. And the question of second homes, that's something we haven't talked about yet, and you mentioned in the piece, is the the paramilitary arm of, of Welsh nationalism. And the, a lot of what they did was was attack second homes belonging, belonging to English people, right? Yeah, houses and also sometimes estate agents that marketed second homes um, to English buyers or in England were targeted with these, these arson attacks. Um, in what was, I mean, I hesitate to use the word successful here, but, you know, in general, the sort of paramilitary arm of Welsh nationalism was somewhat ineffective with the exception of this this arson campaign, um, which no one has ever been kind of caught or brought to justice for, and which went on over a period of many years. I mean, the, the goal was to attack empty homes um, and to cause loss of property rather than loss of life. But no one has ever been has ever been caught. And another big part of the problem is is of course holiday homes, places that are genuine holiday rentals. They're not second homes that maybe, you know, just get rented out for a couple of weeks a year to someone else. Um, they fall under a different category. Because presumably they bring a lot of, quite a lot of money well, comes in for through tourism. The issue is, and, and this, is, this is in a way a much more tricky issue to tackle, but it is an issue that the Welsh government is thinking about. How do you make sure that tourism does genuinely bring money into the area? That people don't drive down to the cottage that they've rented with a week's shop in the back of the car and go to the beach and spend almost no money in the local area? How do you build up a tourism industry that that means that people coming to the area actually spend money in the area? Um, and that also that the money that they spend on renting the cottage doesn't immediately all leave the area because the cottage is owned by a company or by an individual who is based outside Wales. That's a, a really tricky thing to do, but it is something that that the Welsh government is is looking at. Yeah, and this cooperation agreement between Labour and Plaid Cymru seems to be quite working quite well. I mean, it's quite a good way to run. It, I mean, so many coalitions run into the ground and don't get things done. This seems to be quite a, a good way of running a place. It is working quite well, and I think it exemplifies certainly an aspiration on the part of not just Welsh Labour, but also Plaid Cymru, to do government differently, to move away from the very oppositional model of Westminster towards more cooperation, and more bridge building, rather than polarised fighting. And it's a kind of, I think they, certainly Welsh Labour would say that the aspiration is to take that more kind of flexible, cooperative way of working out into how they govern in general. So it's more than just having a cooperation agreement with Plaid. It's about having a more flexible and experimental way of working in Wales generally. So this connects to Welsh Labour's interest in taking a foundational economy approach. So looking not 
to focus on you know high tech industries or tradable goods but to look at the parts of the economy that essentially everyone uses on a, a daily or at least kind of weekly monthly yearly basis so not only housing but also supermarkets and food healthcare education these things that are foundational that we all use but that also huge numbers of people work in and to focus on the different ways in which government can work with those sectors with the foundational economy to improve the experience of the workers and the consumers simultaneously I mean, that's just one of the many ways in which the, the contrast between Welsh government and Westminster government could hardly be starker, really. And is there any hope or prospect that the, I mean, can, the, the, given the you know, dire state of, of politics in Westminster, that the, the Welsh model could be taken up, adopted in, in London? I mean, it is hard to see right now even an end to Conservative Party dominance at Westminster, depressingly enough, despite all of their absolutely disastrous policy decisions and and also kind of personal failings. I suppose it is interesting that where it was Scottish Labour politicians who were taking the initiative and thinking about devolution, particularly in the in the 80s and 90s, it's Welsh Labour that is really now seizing the initiative and bringing together a coalition of Labour politicians, activists, trade unions, thinkers from not only Wales, but also from Scotland and also from from England. You know, people like Tracy Brabin and other mayors who have been part of the the devolution agenda in, in England. It's Welsh Labour that's taking the initiative, bringing these people together, developing ideas for a, a kind of radical federalist vision that would retain the union, but but kind of rethink it on the basis of popular sovereignty for all of the nations and also for the regions within England. That seems to me to be the place in which you can see something to, to kind of some, somewhere that, that a bit of hope can latch on to. Florence sutcliffe Braithwaite, thank you very much. Thanks very much. You can read Florence's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Tom Stevenson's report from Kiev and Julian Barnes on Jacques-Henri Lautigue. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.